This is Guns and Butter. idea that austerity is a total lie. All right, we're in the golden age of corporate profits. The stock market is higher than ever. There's between 20 and 30 trillion dollars offshore, not paying taxes, not being reinvested into any country anywhere. We do not have austerity. Austerity is as big a lie as what they did to crash the market. And it's a political decision. It's the political economy. It's the only way we're going to fight this. And that's why Strike Debt is organizing a debt resistors movement, like I said before. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Lerner, Jim Costanzo, and Steve Soyser. Today's show, Debt Jubilee, Strike Debt, and Germany's Energy Transformation. These presentations were part of the Public Banking 2013 Funding the New Economy Conference, produced by the Public Banking Institute. We begin with Michael Lerner, rabbi of Bet Takun Synagogue in Berkeley, California, and the founding editor of Takun Magazine, dedicated to healing and transforming the world. Michael Lerner. I'm going to get to uh, Jubilee as part of the talk that I want to give, which is really about where are we politically? Okay, the, the ideas being presented here are really, really extraordinary and important. How do we make it happen? Uh, what's going on politically? Where are we politically in this country? And what needs to happen in order for public banking to become serious? Well, I think the first thing we have to recognize is to look back over the past 50 years and to say that there was a huge upsurge of a social movement in the 1960s and early 1970s. And um, that movement that uh, in 1968 represented at least 12 million people identified as, as part of a new left, and, uh, and that was by Fortune magazine. They did a study of it. Um, that movement um, has retreated dramatically, defeated in part, or perceiving themselves as defeated in part, by, um, by the power of America's political elites and economic elites. And it was mentioned here, for example, that in 1973 with the banking, uh, banking companies in cahoots with the, um, with the oil and gas industries, um, creating the uh, gas crisis of 1973, a huge set of um, a massive economic reality um, set into that movement to say, hey, uh, you can't change anything. There's not enough money. You're not going to have enough money. In fact, the ruling class is able to punish you if you're going to follow any of these wild ideas that are coming up in the 60s. As a result, the social movements of the 60s began to contract in a particular way. On the one hand, saying, you know, we can't deal with the big picture. What we need to do is to take the long march through the individual institutions and work on local projects. And on the other hand, saying, but there's one set of issues that we will deal with, and those are the identity politics issues. We will fight for and, uh, and amazingly have been successful in fighting for the elimination of the, the fight against patriarchy, the fight against, against uh, oppression of African Americans, and the fight against um, the oppression of uh, gays in this country. And that was a 
tremendous, incredible victory for those social movements that was just mentioned. The changes that we saw there seemed totally unrealistic when they were first presented, and yet they, um, uh, they were actually achieved. But the cost of that direction, of on the one hand, um, focusing primarily on uh, identity politics, and on the other hand, focusing primarily on um, local social, uh, local institutions, and partial, partial parts of the society at the local level, was that there was no alternative vision being put forward to the dominant ethos of global capitalism. And global capitalism and its uh, its uh, version of what was what's the truth of the world became embodied in the ideology of, of that worldview, became embodied in both political parties. There was no, there's been no effective and no serious attempt in either of those political parties. Of course, the Republicans wholly owned by the 1%, but even the Democratic Party where people still have the fantasy, and it's a fantasy, that there's an alternative there, but actually the, the key elements of the key elements of the capitalist worldview um, uh, predominate in both parties. And there has been no national level, much less an international level, of challenge to those key elements of that, of that ideology. That ideology includes um, the extreme individualism, the belief that our society is a meritocracy and that wherever you end up is a reflection of how much you are worth, what, you know, that is to say, what you have achieved in your life and whatever you got you created for yourself and it's your own fault. Um, wherever you got to in this society, whatever you've ended up with is your fault. Um, the, uh, the notion that you can achieve real happiness by accumulating material goods and um, that the only path forward is for endless growth, as though the planet itself were a bottomless cookie jar from which we could endlessly extract goodies without any consequences or limits. So rather than try to build a political party or a national movement to counter all this, the experience of powerlessness and perceived irrelevance which I believe to be a psychological problem, but, but um, induced in us by the ideologies and by the media and by the political leadership of this country, has reinforced actually as a resultant corporate-controlled media, um, corporate-controlled uh, um, educational system, and a corporate-controlled um, basically the public what we call common sense, a common sense in this society which reflects that kind of a worldview. And it's a worldview that represents the best interests of the 1%, but unfortunately there's not been a counter-alternative vision. And that's why um, it's critical at this historical moment that we put forward a, a global vision, an alternative vision of what counts, of what we are really for. Because the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, when people have ever been excited, you know, think of Martin Luther King Jr., right? Um, he didn't get up, he, he didn't become famous for saying, I have a complaint. <laughs> it was the dream, it was the vision, even though it transcended what people thought was possible at that moment, seemed unrealistic, that was what moved people. Now, uh, where did that vision come to? I'm, I was asked as a rabbi to talk to you uh, a little bit about, the, um, about where that vision came from or where a vision of that sort comes from. And it comes uh, in part 
one part of the source of visioning in this way comes from the, the biblical tradition. Yes, we know, and I want to stipulate the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, all kinds of things that aren't so great in the religious traditions, okay? Uh, acknowledge all that. But there was in that uh, a liberatory view there that came out of the Torah that said there is a force in the universe yud heh vav mistranslated as God in, in English, but there is a force in the universe that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. There is a force in the universe that makes that possible, and human beings have been created in the image of that force. Human beings are created in the image of that force that makes possible the transformation from that which is to that which ought to be. And what's idolatry? Idolatry is being a realist. Idolatry is being a realist, a realist because what a realist does is they say that what is possible will be judged by that which is. And in other words, uh, we, will, we will figure out what's possible based on our vision of what is at this moment and what the current power relationships are. Whereas uh, the, mess- the essential message of that Torah was to say, um, no, you guys were slaves and you have become free. So everybody who tells you that uh, the social realities can't be fundamentally changed, our very experience as the Jewish people um, proves that that's a lie, that the world can be fundamentally transformed. So what in, in that Torah then, uh, that Torah tries to say, okay, what do we envision as the kind of world that we'd want to live in if it's really true that there is a force of possibility in the universe, okay? And call it God, call it yud call it whatever you wish, that force of possibility, what is the world that we want to live, live in? Well, we in the, uh, the Network of Spiritual Progressives say, okay, here's one way of talking about it. We want the caring society, a society, uh, a society that cares for each other and cares for the earth. Or another way of saying it is, we need a new bottom line in this society. A bottom line in which every institution, every economic and political institution, including uh, every corporation, every government policy, our laws, our, um, our healthcare system, our legal system, our educational system, should all be judged efficient, rational, and productive not only to the extent that they maximize money and power, but also to the extent that they maximize love and caring, kindness and generosity, ethical and ecological sensitivity, enhance our capacity, enhance our capacity to respond to other human beings as embodiments of the sacred, and enhance our capacity to respond to the universe with awe and wonder and radical amazement at the grandeur of all that is, rather than looking at the universe around us as simply something to be uh, used for our own purposes. So a different, a fundamentally new bottom line is what we, we, we are for as a network of spiritual progressives. A new bottom line that comes out of a spiritual and religious tradition that transcends left-right boundaries. And if a progressive movement were talking about that kind of a new bottom line, we would have a, a fundamental reconfiguration of politics in, in our society. So... Um, Let's take the examples that the Bible comes up with of what some of that would look like. And the first idea that it comes up with as a revolutionary idea is the sabbatical year. Every, and here's what the sabbatical year is. Every seventh year, everyone in the society stops working. Okay? Now, that, 
that means that you have to have made arrangements for food uh, to be distributed and so forth, which they did. And so, but um, it okay. So, and there's a way of doing that. We can talk about that in a second. But what I want to say is the second part of the sabbatical year is all debts are eliminated every seventh year. Okay, now get it that. Imagine a progressive movement that was calling for a sabbatical year. Imagine what it would look like in America, okay? Try to imagine, maybe you'd say, after looking at the complexities of our advanced society, you'd say 15% of the population is going to still have to work that, that you know, we're going to have to have doctors and you know, hospitals and we're going to have to have some people uh, providing, um, providing for uh, uh, energy source and a f- few other things like that, 15% maybe. But 85, imagine what it would look like if 85% of the population once every seven years was off for that year and was then free to engage in, for example, the discussions, uh, democratic discussions about what kind of society do we actually want? If you ask people why are they not involved in politics today, most of the people you know will say, I'm too exhausted after work. I don't have any time to do it. I, don't, I can't get involved in that. Okay, Create a year in which this would happen, and it will, it will provide the space. But even the thought process, because the thought process is, no, I have to keep going. I have to keep going. I have to make more things happen. Okay? If you can get the spiritual transformation that a sabbatical, the consciousness of sabbatical year would lead to, even just talking about it, that, oh, wait a second, maybe we don't need a new brand, a a new version of our electronics every year or every six months. Is that possible? That maybe we wouldn't, you know, that maybe we, so they say, well, we wouldn't be able to compete on the global market if we did that. Um, Yeah, what would be so bad about that? What would actually be so terrible if we weren't competing on the global marketplace? And, of course, the idea would spread like wildfire and it would quickly happen in other societies as well. But imagine that we weren't, that we were no longer looking to be number one, but instead we were looking to be number one in a different way, in a different way in which we nurtured human beings and our souls and not simply getting more and more and more and more. Okay, so the sabbatical year also, as I say, eliminates debt. And that brings us to the seven times seven after the 49th year is the jubilee. And the jubilee concept in, in, in Torah is very clear. It says all the, the, the means of production, which in the ancient world was uh, the land, in the contemporary world it would have to include uh, much else in uh, in the society, that the, that the the means of production get redistributed every 50 years back to the original equal distribution. Okay, so you eliminate um, you eliminate every 50 years you eliminate any inequalities that have happened throughout that 50 year period. Now this was an idea that was really mind blowing even in the ancient world, and. Um, and it was, a revol- it was a revolutionary idea to have that kind of a jubilee. And, um, and so the Torah, recognizing that, immediately says, but won't people say, wait a second, I worked for this land, you know? Uh, I, I got more. My, these other people were lazy. They didn't work as hard. I got to accumulate more than they did. And now you're telling me every 50 years uh, that I get to lose all this? And the Torah's response is, it says, okay, uh, for here, we've got to call God in. And so God, God, and let's say goddess, 
okay, that the goddess of the universe intervenes in this conversation and says, wait a second, um, you don't own this, this earth. The whole earth is mine. I created this whole earth. You are, this is what it says. You can look at it in Leviticus. It's in the, in the Hebrew, the chapter of Behar and the, on the Mount Sinai. It says, this, um, this whole earth is mine. And who are you? You are sojourners on this land. You are, you are passing through. You are passing through. What right do you have? You have no right. You have, you have an obligation to the land. And what's the obligation? The obligation is to care for it and to tend it and protect the earth. But you have no right to it. You have no right to it because this land, you didn't create this land. You didn't create this and you don't, uh, and you don't, you won't be around that long to control it. So get it. You are sojourners on this planet and, uh, and the time will go and you will pass and your next generation will pass and the next generation will pass. And yes, so therefore, I'm telling you, as the God of the universe, redistribute it. Okay. Okay. So just, just so imagine, just try to imagine um, the conversation that would take place in this country. If we put on the ballot in California, for example, the sabbatical year and the jubilee. Okay. Now, we'd have, who would be our allies? Well, um, certainly we would want to go to all the fundamentalists. It's right there in the Torah written just as strongly. They're saying, hey, I, I'm not a hater of uh, gays, but it just says here that I have to treat gays this way, right? Okay, well, it also says you have to redistribute every 50 years. You want to be a, a fundamentalist? Then come with us. But actually, the idea is not a crazy idea. It's a powerful idea. And it's one which liberates people from the current, their current ways of thinking about uh, um, number one, the sabbatical year about debts. So from that flows a whole different way of thinking about, uh, about the world. Um, so if you couple the elimination of debts and a seventh year, now you know, I know that this is far from the existing way that we think because I as a rabbi, uh, my congregation, Beit um, Tikkun in, 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 in Berkeley, and people come to us with some degree of political consciousness, but even most people say, I can't even do Shabbos of the Sabbath one day a week. I can't for one 24-hour period stop using money, which is part of the Sabbath, stop exercising control and power, um, just celebrate the universe. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to be about. It's about celebrating, celebrating the creation of the universe. Just have one day dedicated to pleasure, okay? One day a week, and most people say, I can't fit it in, okay? <laughs> I can't do it, okay? But the good news is that there are a lot of people out there who are able to do it, and it's an incredibly liberating thing. Imagine a year like that. It would be incredible, incredibly powerful. Okay, so the Jubilee and the sabbatical year, try to work it out, and I think we can work out what it would look like for a sabbatical year. It's actually possible to do that, okay? But this brings me to the notion of, okay, we need to say what we are for in the largest possible way and in the most radical possible way to put forward a vision of what we are for. Um, and what we are for in a very short, you know, 10-second or 15-second soundbite is the new bottom line. 
a bottom line of love and caring and kindness and generosity in which every institution gets judged to be efficient or productive to the extent that they're maximizing people's capacity. They're contributing, at least, to people's capacity to be more loving, more caring, more generous, more kind, more ethically and ecologically sensitive, and more capable of responding to the universe with awe and wonder and radical amazement. Now, if you had that... Okay, now... Okay, so how do you take this concretely? So I want to give you two examples of programs that we have put forward. The first one is called the Global Marshall Plan. And the Global Marshall Plan says that the United States should now take the step to um, bring other advanced industrial countries to dedicate 1% to 2% of the gross domestic product of the United States each year for the next 20 to once and for all end global poverty, homelessness, hunger, inadequate education, inadequate health care. The, the Global Marshall Plan was introduced into Congress um, by Congressman Keith Ellison, who is now the chair of the uh, Progressive Caucus of the Congress. Could you believe it that there is a Progressive Caucus? There's actually, there are actually 80 members, and, and Keith Ellison is the chair. And Keith, along with about 20 others, has introduced the Network of Spiritual Progressives Global Marshall Plan into Congress. Is it going to pass? Not right away. No. Okay. Okay. Now, the second concrete example of, of how to take a vision of a new bottom line and put it forward, because that's the first one. Okay, but, oh, just to say another sentence about that, that one. Uh, the, the Global Marshall Plan is advocated for in part by the following, that our recognition that homeland security, today the dominant theory of homeland security is you get homeland security through domination and control over others. And, uh, and the, the hard right, right line is, and that domination is through military means. The soft, you know, the sweet, or maybe the more liberal elements of the Democratic Party line is, no, the way we get that domination and control is through, um, is, uh, through uh, economic penetration, media penetration, um, diplomacy, all of this, in other words, uh, is a nicer way. It's not pure violence to get our way. But the goal that both sides have, both that split, is a split about how we can get to dominate and control the world. Okay, The soft version or the hard version, but it's all about domination. The Global Marshall Plan says, no, no. The way to get homeland security is through generosity, it is through showing the rest of the world that we actually care about their well-being. And if you want security, okay, when I say that, you get it? That this is a vision. People don't hear that from the, from the liberal and progressive world. They don't hear a vision of how, you know, they say, well, you, you, don't care about the, you, know, you don't care about homeland security. You don't care about our protection. Yes, we do. We care about it. And the way to achieve it is different. It's not through military power. It's through generosity and caring. And when people get that, we will be far more secure. So that's a one step of one instantiation of how you get people open to the idea of a new bottom line of love and caring and kindness and generosity by showing them what it would look like in practice. And if you'll go to our website, spiritualprogressives.org, we have the whole Global Marshall Plan laid out there, and you can read it and see that it actually is quite smart. It's, it's, not, it's not just a slogan. I'm giving you the slogan level because I was given 20 minutes. All right. But, <laughs> but, but there's a lot of thought in there. Please look at it. The second instantiation of the Jubilee consciousness 
is the, um, the uh, ESRA. ESRA, the Environmental and Social Responsibility Amendment to the, to the Federal Constitution. And the ESRA says the following. It's, this is our plan. Uh, we call it the campaign to get money out of politics and elections. So well, here's what it says. And it's somewhat different than, than uh, move to amend, although we totally f- support move to amend and I greatly appreciate David Cobb's incredible work and the, the people in the move to amend uh, movement and their wonderful work. But we are taking it a step further. We are saying as point number one of the environmental and social responsibility, the ESRA, is the following. All private money from individuals or corporations, from any source, is forbidden by law in elections and in, uh, and in uh, politics. And instead, all elections must be publicly funded and only publicly funded, okay? So that our elected officials don't have to spend their time catering to the 1% because that's the only place that they can get the money to run the campaign, Okay, and it requires, um, uh, conversely, it requires the media, major media, to give free and equal time to all the major political candidates so that nobody has to pay for that time. They're using our airwaves. Let it be free. Okay, now, that takes a major step towards getting the power of the, the wealthy out of our electoral system. But is it enough? No. Why? Because um, capital can always strike. That is to say, they can say... Um, okay, you want to be unfriendly to us? We'll move. We'll move our corporations. We'll move out, out of this area. We'll, uh, we will disinvest and so forth. Okay, so the second part of the ESRA says the following. Every corporation with incomes of more than $50 million a year must get a new corporate charter once every five years. And, and, and that new corporate charter will only be granted if they can prove a satisfactory history of environmental and social responsibility to a jury of ordinary citizens. You see, there's no point in saying, okay, well, we're going to make a step forward towards democracy by simply getting corporate money out. You have to get all money out of the system because rich people don't have to give their money through corporations. They can give it directly. Okay, so you've got to get all money out, but also you've got to control the power of the corporations. And how do you do that? This is the way. Democratic control. What a, a, a group of ordinary citizens can decide about the future of a, of a corporation? That seems so, you know, how are they to know enough about that? Well, if we give them the power to decide on life and death of individuals uh, when they are facing charges that have capital, offense, uh, capital offenses, if individuals' fate can be decided by ordinary citizens, then the fate of corporations can also be decided by ordinary citizens. Okay, so, so it then goes on to also mandate um, uh, environmental education in every grade level, and that environmental education includes recognizing, teaching ki- uh, kids how to recognize and deal with each other as, uh, as critical parts of saving the environment is being able to empower each other and to recognize the spirit in each other as people who are fundamentally valuable and to teach that in the school system as a central part of building or saving our environment. Okay, these are two concrete steps that embody the spirit of Jubilee and they are steps in the direction of saying the fundamental truth that the world is not fixed, that the world can be healed and transformed, that it is possible to make a very different kind of world. And the key is, and remember these words, do not be realistic.
Do not be realistic. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Rabbi Michael Lerner. Michael Lerner is the founding editor of Tacoon Magazine. We continue with Jim Costanzo. Jim Costanzo is a worker and organizer with strike debt in New York City. He gives a case study of the disaster recovery after Hurricane Sandy. Today's show, Debt Jubilee, Strike Debt, and Germany's Energy Transformation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Hi. Um, strike Debt is an offshoot of Occupy Wall Street. Uh, One of our mottos is, we are not alone, you are not alone. We want to get past the financialization of the individual, uh, much like uh, Occupy Wall Street. It is occupied. How many many people out here were part of one of the occupations? Yeah, all right. There we go. Look around. A lot of people. We don't owe anything to Wall Street. We had Mike Taibbi here. We have all these people telling us how this was manipulated. We owe everything to each other. It's about community. Uh, the idea of strike debt is to do away with debt. We're starting a debt resistors movement. No blame, no guilt. Direct action, political action. Horizontal, direct democracy. Um, like I said, we're part of Occupy Wall Street. I think a lot of you, since all the hands were up, you know that the Occupy movements are still there. We're still working. Uh, we're a lot smaller than we were when we had the occupations going, but there's a lot of incredible work going on. I know there is here. I just met a bunch of people from uh, Strike Deck San Diego and other occupiers, and I'm very encouraged. We look to Oakland. You were the most radical occupation and the strongest occupation. And San Francisco, it's, it was amazing. When we saw those people pouring over the bridges when you went into the port, but San Francisco... Um, they put up, one of the city council people proposed a public bank, and that was really impressive. Even though it only was one vote, it was there, and it really was inspiring. Um, Strike debt really started out of the student debt movement. It was basically, there was the $1 trillion day, which was last year in around March, where student loans went over a trillion dollars. And also, it also exceeded the credit card debt. And these are uh, students, former students, that put their loans, you know, on their body so people could see it. The whole idea of shame and just admitting what was going on. Because even if your house is underwater, if you can't pay your mortgage, that all has to do with shame. And that's what debt is about. Okay, so we wanted to tell people that debt is the thing that, that binds the 99%. And whether it's uh, your personal debt, student debt, medical debt, people that have insurance still end up with incredible amounts of medical debt. So we're trying to deal with all of this. The concept of debt, which our really economic system is based on, I'll get into that a little bit later, but we're also starting debt resistors movement. We already talked about uh, Sandy uh, Strike Debt Bay Area, but there's other groups of strike debt around the country and Occupy and the combination. I don't want to separate them out too much, but we're going in a little bit of a different direction. But it's an international movement. You can see in France, small towns are refusing to pay what they consider fraudulent debt. And I'm going to go a little quickly here because we're a little behind. Uh, We have three main projects with strike debt right now. We wrote a debt resistors manual. We're going to go to a professional publisher. We're going to have it in bookstores across the country, in the mall. We'll have 
an e-book. I'll talk about that later. We'll also have the Rolling Jubilee, which some of you have heard of. And we're also actually working with people with public banking and others to deal with uh, the check cashing issues. What we'll do is strike debt and occupy is bring attention to things. We don't solve problems, but we really do bring attention. Um, I think most people have heard about Occupy Sandy, what happened. The day after the floods, the day after the hurricane, I was lucky. I was in Brooklyn on high ground. I turned on the TV and I saw the relief, which was volunteer. And I go, wait, I, I know this person. I know There were Occupy people. All right. So about a month after the storm hit, strike debt, we collaborated on a report on Sandy, who shoulders the cost, and what does it mean to rebuild? We wanted to look at the uh, Hurricane Sandy and other disasters and then try to figure out what was going on with FEMA and all these other things. Uh, Occupy Sandy was so amazing on so many different levels. Even the New York Times wrote a favorable article about Occupy. Uh, yeah, right. So it's really important. Occupy Sandy is about mutual aid. It's not charity. Mutual aid is totally different than charity. And the idea that we are in this together, that we are a community working together. And Occupy Faith, the churches, opened their doors to us. So we have these relationships. We had them from the beginning because Occupy Faith understood what the financial crisis is about in New York. And they supported us to a certain degree. Uh, what we did, we set up these emergency centers. This is Occupy Sandy, these buildings that were still inhabitable. And we made signs. So people, people didn't have cell phones. They didn't have electricity. But they had signs to show them where to go, how to get to, you know, just one of the things up there is to recharge your battery for your phone so you can be in touch with friends and family. And what we found was pretty uh, basic. That happens in all disasters. Uh, the economic costs are really covered by the individuals in the form of debt. Um, aid packages are about debt. You have to apply for a loan for FEMA. And if you apply for the loan and your income is below a certain level, you will get direct aid. If not, you'll get more debt. Uh, and the, what we found was the federal programs, of course, are incredibly complicated. Uh, people are totally confused. They don't know where to go, even when they go to talk to somebody who's supposed to help them. They come back really not understanding what was going on. And, of course, they're in shock for what just happened. So you add the shock value into the complicated process, and it's very difficult. We were able to help some people, and we, you know, we went into a lot of areas that were totally ignored. And the next one is about, um, you know, the idea that the people that really have the resources get the most aid quicker. They're the ones who are able to rebuild quicker, right? It was really interesting because a lot of the housing projects in New York at one point were built on the ocean, so we had uh, projects that were hit by Sandy and then went weeks without anything but Occupy people coming to help them. And it was uh, just incredible. It was very much in a way like Katrina. I didn't think they could get away with what they got away with in Katrina, but they did. Um, I don't want to go through this whole report. It's a little bit long, and I'm going to move a little quickly. Uh, basically, when you had the infrastructure grants, basically when the, when the money is being distributed from Congress, what happens is companies, for Katrina, companies like Halliburton got the contracts, right, other defense contractors. What they did, they take 10 20 percent right off the top, subcontract, just like in the war, right? And it goes down and down. 
By the time they go to rebuild, to work in the streets, there's very little actual cash. One town, one subcontractor brought in workers from Honduras. Promptly, they were going to give them less than minimum wage, but they put them in a camp and didn't pay them. Um, we, we're fighting against that in New York. We are very much so. But the idea is the initial, when the initial uh, disaster happens, by the, by the time FEMA gets there, or Red Cross, which I have big issues with, from 9-11 and for this, there is really very little happening on the ground. It's mutual aid, uh, local communities helping each other. And uh, it, was a, it was just amazing, because people who weren't part of the occupation, who didn't come to Zuccotti Free Liberty Plaza, were volunteering. Okay, so they were coming. So we had this whole really large number of new people come into the Occupy movement from this. And it was really beautiful on so many different levels. Um, then the idea of insurance. I think um, if any of you are homeowners, well, what kind of insurance do you have? Flood insurance is different than hurricane insurance. If it's a tropical storm, it's a different category. It's in, just like the financial instruments to make it hard for you to understand what it is. Well, your insurance is like that. And many people didn't have insurance or had to wait and had to fight with insurance adjusters to get their money. And besides, it never comes that quickly. We'll get to uh, the North Dakota Bank and how different it was. So the, the idea is that the people who had resources, and we saw this happen, they start rebuilding immediately, even before they can come in and assess what's going on. So they kind of grandfather in the, whatever rebuilding they do before any kind of new regulation comes in. And of course, the racial component, which again, I thought, well, New Orleans is different than New York. It wasn't different. If you're a person of color, you did not get the same rate of loans, even if you had the same statistics economically, if your neighborhood was next door to these others, there was still a racial component to it. Uh, what happened in February, we held the People's Recovery Summit, uh, which I also participated in, and we were looking at other things strategically, how to work together. We had a lot of different NGOs that were community-based working with us, talking about looking at how the rebuilding would go, how they would do it, because we wanted to look at the money, which is very hard to do. Uh, what we also decided was that we wanted to build all of these areas totally green, zero carbon footprint, right? Here's the executive order. This is law, all right? And at the very bottom, you can probably hardly see it. It says, rebuilding effort must address economic conditions and the region's aged infrastructure, because these were built in the 30s to 50s. Um, and it also included public housing, which was very encouraging. The problem is the corporations want to get the public houses on the water and redevelop it. Okay, uh, what it also gets into, also build it, the infrastructure, to meet the new standards and perceived standards as we go forward. And for us, we thought that would mean build it green, but that's not the way it's being interpreted. Uh, this is uh, Greensboro, Kansas. They were destroyed in 2007, and they built green. That's what we want for uh, Occupy Sandy. Are we going to be able to get it? Uh, It'll be hard. This green building, all right, this is a totally green building. They uh, produce all their own internal uh, electricity. This was just built in Seattle. They also have rainwater. Of course, they're in the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of rain, but they'll use no water, no electricity. This technology is there. I think we already know that, right? But we want to use it. 
and politically. Well, let me just say, we are not in an economic recession, depression. This is political economy. Uh, and the political economy, this was Jimmy Carter uh, in the 1970s. Of course, Barack Obama put up those solar panels, but he's doing absolutely nothing to promote any kind of green energy. All right? Now, we are still monitoring what is going on with Occupy Sandy. This is a report from New Jersey, May 14th. Okay. Are you a survivor of uh, Superstorm Sandy? Has FEMA issued you a check for your repairs? Do you have a mortgage with a big bank? Is that bank holding your FEMA money? If yes, call Occupy Sandy. So the idea of how the big banks and FEMA are working together, well, maybe I don't want to totally throw FEMA um, into this, but the idea that the FEMA would send the money to big banks, the people that hold the mortgages, before they send it to the uh, people that actually are getting the relief, to me is problematic. Um, we're also working with uh, Good Jobs New York so that when they rebuild, we will have a living wage. People will at least get a living wage. There will be some union workers there too. So we're trying to work with the whole range of recovery, uh, not just the mutual aid, which we got all the attention for, but we're trying to help to draw attention to the problems that all natural disasters have inherently with them. And uh, this is the Bank of North Dakota. And Mark already talked about it. I don't want to go into it too much. But just go online and look at their website. It talks about rebuilding loans, uh, especially for Occupy, especially with the student movement. The idea that there's, there's a whole section, if you look at the way they treat educational loans, cradle to grave kind of, grandparents, they also have non-traditional studies, so if you're out of school for 10, 20 years, you would drop out of high school. You have somebody to talk to about possibly going back, as opposed to our typical type of bank, bank loans, and even the federal government. So, again, I just want to very quickly talk a little bit about strike death. Uh, but we started the Rolling Jubilee in uh, November of last year, and... At, to date, we've raised $591,000, enough money to abolish, not forgive, but abolish $11.9 million of debt. What we discovered, it's awesome. It really is amazing. And what we discovered was that banks build into their model that certain number of people, or certain amount of money will be not paid. Right? They will not be able to make their payments. And that's built into a business model. When they don't pay, they write it off their taxes. And then what they do after that, they sell the defaulted loans to vulture capitalists who make the people who cannot afford to pay those loans, they make their lives hell by harassing them, by doing illegal things, uh, threatening them with lawsuits, threatening to destroy their credit even more, threatening to foreclose whatever a car or whatever, things that really they can, they're not allowed to say by the law, but they, that's a matter. They'll make anything up they can just to harass these people, scare them to get a fraction of the money back. Um, and, you know, this is an ongoing project with strike debt. Uh, this is just one of the letters we got from Louisiana. I'm 67 years old. I tried to refinance my loan. I couldn't do it. I only, only owe $8,000. But my wife and I, we get one Social Security check, and they can't pay back the loan. Why a woman who has worked all her life in the home and helped out and raised family does not get a Social Security check is beyond... I, I don't, how does that... Raising our children has value.
All right. So the debt resistors operation manual on the left was self-published. This is the new edition. We counsel people on how to deal with medical debt, how to deal with foreclosures, how to fight against these things, and how to postpone paying the debts and doing other things. We're also getting into sovereign debt for the new edition, uh, climate debt, and also we're also mentioning state banks, the State Bank of North Dakota, and the uh, Banking Institute as a way of alternatives to the debt system we have. And the idea that austerity is a total lie, all right, we're in the golden age of corporate profits. The stock market is higher than ever. There's between 20 and $30 trillion offshore, not paying taxes, not being reinvested into any country anywhere. We do not have austerity. Austerity is as big a lie as what they did to crash the market. And it's a political decision. It's the political economy. It's the only way we're going to fight this. And that's why Strike Debt is organizing a debt resistors movement, like I said before. Thank you. You've been listening to Jim Costanzo, an organizer with Strike Debt in New York City. We continue with Steve Soyser. Steve Soyser is co-director of the Washington, D.C. Public Banking Center and talks about Germany's energy transformation. Today's show, Debt Jubilee, Strike Debt, and Germany's Energy Transformation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, good afternoon. I'd like to uh, talk to you a little bit about the kind of a shining star of an example of uh, renewable energy transformation that's happening in Germany. Um, it's certainly um, impressive um, if you hear at all about it in the news or see um, pictures of things that are happening. Um, it's quite a model, and I want to um, just talk about it briefly. So what is Germany's energy transition? It's a large-scale transformation of their, um, their energy market. Um, so it is a movement away from conventional um, fuels and nuclear energy. And I also want to say that, that I'm starting at a point that um, includes about 25 years of backstory. There is a, a long, long history of anti-nuclear and other um, very environmental um, activism in Germany with the establishment and growth of the Green Party. And that is all the backstory behind this. So this did not happen out of the blue with um, a couple of politicians getting together and deciding this was going to happen. There was a huge amount of um, grassroots effort that went on behind this. So Germany's uh, renewable energy uh, program includes five main components. It's uh, wind, solar, biomass, hydro, and geothermal. Um, It's mainly small-scale installations, and I want to highlight that point all the way through the presentation, not utility-scale. The um, the big boys did not get um, what they wanted out of this deal in, in Germany. So it's broad ownership and participation, a lot of homeowners, a lot of farmers, small businesses, and there's enormous public support for this. This was not a fight to to make happen. There were fights along the way, but um, when it uh, finally got to the point of being enacted, there was not a huge fight. There was a large public consensus for it and, um, and reasonable costs associated. 
So um, the the bulk of the costs are borne by um, consumers, and um, there is actually a carve out for large industrial users in terms of the additional fees that are that are charged. So. It may seem like a bit of a cave-in to those um, folks, but they're also driving the German economy, and people recognize that broadly, and they were willing to make that concession in order to enact the bill. And the actual bill was first passed in 2000, and I think it's been modified three times since then. They've made a series of technical improvements in the law, and they were willing to see how markets were shifting and um, loopholes that were being created, and they've gone back and fixed them. So I think it's another lesson to be learned. They didn't get it right the first time, and they, they keep focusing on what needs to be done to improve it. So they had a, a many reasons for doing the, the energy transition. I'd say a big one in Germany is really climate change. Um, they are intent on reducing their energy imports. Uh, the Czech Republic and um, France and a couple of other countries have been the um, producers of a lot of um, German energy, and they continue to be, but the goal is to phase those down and, and create more German-produced energy uh, from within, from renewable sources. The idea is to also stimulate technology innovation and the uh, green economy within Germany. So there's a large new infrastructure of green businesses that are being built through this policy. They're also out to uh, reduce and eliminate nuclear risks. This is just a hot-button issue in Germany, um, completely opposite France, where um, apparently um, nuclear can do no wrong, but Germans are very aware of the the dangers of um, radioactive waste and, uh, and, and nuclear accidents. So this is a hot, a hot button for Germany. Their um, intent on strengthening the energy security of Germany, um, they want to build local economies and provide social justice. And what that means is really addressing um, the long-term energy costs and how that affects um, lower-income consumers. So the financing for energy transition in Germany is based on feed-in tariffs. And if you guys are not familiar with that term, it just means a, um, a price that the um, grid operators uh, agree to pay to certain uh, renewable energy sources for their energy. And um, in Germany, under this law, it's under a 20-year term. So it's a, a quite nice uh, deal. Um, the tariffs were initially very lucrative, and they've also differentiated between the various types of power to encourage certain types of renewable energy, but then not over-subsidize other types that will happen because of market forces on their own. So it's a fairly sophisticated scheme. And um, because of the long-term financing and the certainty of, of revenues flowing into the deals, everybody is willing to um, lend to the deals. So private banks, public banks, everybody's willing to go into these deals. This is completely unlike what we have here. 
So I wanted to highlight just a couple of public German banks that are actively participating in renewable energy deals. Um, Sparkasse is sort of a regional cooperative chain of banks, and they are, um, in some areas of the country, the largest part of the banking system. In um, what used to be East Germany, they are the largest um, piece of the pie, and they are everywhere on you know, lots of street corners in Germany. And um, they focus on consumer and residential lending. The Reifeisenbank is one of the earliest um, examples of a German public bank. It was initially um, targeted to agricultural, um, to farmers and then um, other agricultural-related businesses, but it's expanded beyond that by now. And the, one of the really great things, and this is a huge cost savings comparing uh, Germany to the United States, is that... Um, a property owner can make a decision on a Monday and they would have a complete system installed on their roof by Friday. I don't think I can say that for D.C. It's more like three to six months and all that time eats up an enormous amount of money and um, cost projects um, additional fees and hourly wages and everything else um, because uh, people are pouring over documents that are really quite routine. So it's something that needs to be fixed in the United States. What I like about German solar is that it shows up in the most remarkable places. Like you can be uh, riding on the train through Bavaria and see these picturesque German homes with the um, half timbers and beautiful Bavarian um, architecture, and they'll have solar panels on the roof. This would be like we'd have a war in Washington, D.C. if we tried to do the same thing in a historic district because it just wouldn't be appropriate historically to try to put solar panels on the roof. But Germans are quite adaptable, and they understand that um, historic buildings adapt over time, and um, something as important as um, providing the energy for the building is worth modifying the building for. Uh, this is very typical, a farm building, occasionally in the countryside, and you know, on the south-facing roof, they'll put up solar panels. Um, in single-family homes, you'll see, like even in little rural villages, you'll see like somebody obviously got the idea first to go solar, and they talk about it to their neighbors, they see how it's working, and in a bunch of people, like in a rural village, will go solar. So it's quite impressive how much it's expanded in Germany. You'll also see some um, larger installations. This is just in a field or a pasture, and so rows of um, solar panels will be set up too. And it's possible that in some of these that the pastures could still be used for grazing, so there's not 100% use of the the agricultural uh, purpose of the land, and it's intermixed with solar or wind. So there's some significant accomplishments here. So 16% of um, Germany's energy is now produced from renewable sources in the first four months of 2013. And this is a number that just keeps climbing and climbing and climbing. There's been some equally impressive milestones. Like there was one day this year where 50% of Germany's entire energy uh, was produced from renewable sources. So if it's available from renewable sources, they don't have to produce it from conventional. Um, they've created 380,000 new jobs so far. The number's climbing. Um, the money that they used to export to buy um, energy from other countries is now being saved and spent in the local economy. 
And all partners in the renewable energy game in Germany are being rewarded. So it's the property owners, the energy consumers are getting a good deal. They're getting renewable energy. Solar installers have a good business. Lenders are uh, making a decent profit, not huge profits. But the big utilities lost out. They didn't win this argument. And um, 50% of German uh, renewable energy is locally owned. So it could be a farmer, a homeowner, but there are also community facilities that are um, community-owned. So the question comes up, well, isn't Germany just a technological wonder, or they have such unique resources that they're just exceptional, and they're an idea? It's a shining example, but unfortunately, we can never do it. And I think the answer is no. There are no extraordinary renewable resources of the leading uh, renewable energy countries. There is nothing like the um, geothermal that um, both Norway and Iceland have. There's nothing remarkable. In fact, they have a horrible um, rainy, cloudy climate. It's awful. I lived there one year where it rained from, I don't know, May and June for six weeks every day. And they have, like, enormous solar production going on. So, no, that is not it. Um, there's a relatively um, low level of renewable energy before this law was passed, so no, they didn't start with a huge base. They've made incremental progress every year for the last 13 and 14 years, so it's just steady, steady growth. It's remarkable growth, even like you know, 20% growth in the last year in solar, so the growth is continuing to expand, so they're just doing a good job. They put a good regulatory and financing system in place. Um, it did require building and maintaining a political consensus and amending laws regularly. And I think that's a key lesson for the United States. You've been listening to Steve Soyser, co-director of the Washington, D.C. Public Banking Center. Today's show has been Debt Jubilee, Strike Debt, and Germany's Energy Transformation. The presentations on Debt Jubilee with Michael Lerner, Strike Debt with Jim Costanzo, and Germany's Energy Transformation with Steve Soyser were part of the larger Public Banking Institute's Public Banking 2013 Funding the New Economy Conference of June 2nd through 4th in San Rafael, California. The Public Banking Institute's vision is to fund the new economy with cheap and affordable credit generated from the deposits that city, county, and state governments currently place in Wall Street banks. Visit www.publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because
on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?